Hello out there on the internet. I am Matthew Galt, and this is Cyber. <clears throat> Pardon me. On May 24th, several news outlets reported on the internal workings of a Chinese-run Uyghur internment camp in the western part of the country. The reports included detailed blueprints of the camp's interiors, classified speeches from officials, and the personal information of police officers. An anonymous source hacked the information got it out of China and into the hands of journalists. It's part of a recent trend in resurgent hacktivism. With me today to talk about all of this is motherboard staff writer Joseph Cox. JC, as always, it's a pleasure. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, so for anyone who doesn't know, uh, kind of some basic stuff up here at the top. Can you tell me about how China treats its Turkic and Uyghur minorities and kind of what they face? Yeah, sure. I mean, for years, the Chinese state has been waging what is, you know, essentially a cultural genocide uh, on these ethnic groups. It all started way back where there was a relatively small um, terrorist attack uh, committed by somebody of uh, uh, Uyghur descent. Ever since then, um, the Chinese state has responded, you know, in um, by physically detaining people in these so-called re-education camps, uh, and also doing a creating a massive apparatus of surveillance, and that includes everything from planting malware onto Uyghur's phones, and we also found on tourists entering that part of the country, right up to facial recognition systems being deployed and people being tracked that way. I mean, it is sort of a worst-case scenario, uh, the nightmare scenario for what uh, digital surveillance can look like if turned towards a uh, particular population. Right. It's kind of – it's. I hate to use the word fascinating because it's so awful, but it is – to watch what China has done and built there, um, just like you said, it, it's – it's everything we're afraid of, I think, at Motherboard, right? It's it's all of the stuff that we kind of warn against when we when we talk about things like the Citizen app and Shotcaller and all of these different kinds of things. Like these are the places. This is the darkest one of the darkest places it can go, right? Is is a, a large group of people being surveilled, almost cities built around them, you know, physically and digitally, and all of their movements tracked. Yeah, I mean, this is what happens when you have a truly authoritarian state married with technical um, capability, let's say, right? You know, obviously, uh, China has a massive uh, capability and industry able to produce surveillance software and technologies. And of course, you know, this... um, cultural genocide of the Uyghur population comes from the very highest political levels uh, of the government. So when you marry that authoritarian uh, leaning with the technology, this is what happens, you know. 
All right. So what is in these documents? Sure. So I'm looking at the the main website for the uh, Xinjiang Police Files Now, which was put together by the organization that originally um, received the files, called Victims of Communist Memorial, uh, Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. Um, and the documents themselves, well, it's, it's more of a very wide selection of files. So you'll have very visual stuff, which is images of police operations, you know, training, that sort of thing, showing just how brutal um, the police forces want to be. You then have uh, key documents, which are stuff like speeches and policy directors, which show that this approach, you know... <laughs> As, as we all know, but it's good to see it in, in in documentation, obviously, this isn't just a few bad apples or something. This is a truly gargantuan, officially rolled out policy, and the speeches and the directives can give some indication of that. And then I think probably most viscerally, there are also images of detainees, you know, something like over 2,800 images of people who are detained in these concentration camps essentially and you can just scroll through them and see who these people are you know journalists have taken this information that was shared with them by the organization you know some have made visualizations making it easy to go through the data all of that sort of thing uh, but it's a really um rich and deep data set that we've got here you know there have been other leaks out of uh, Xinjiang before, you know, as I mentioned, we reported about the piece of malware installed on tourists' phones. And obviously, although what tourists may be exposed to is absolutely nothing compared to what the local population is exposed to, that still gave an indication of the, you know, the the lengths to which the Chinese state w was going with this. And that was all fine and good. And, and we got some impact with that, with antivirus companies adding that piece of malware to their antivirus search engines. But it's not really... It's not much to look at, <laughs> you know, when you upload an APK to GitHub or whatever, it's readers don't necessarily uh, react to that, let's say, emotionally, right? This is different. This is a lot more real, I think, for a lot more people. And I have to shout out, I think the BBC in particular, um, who I think has had the information for a little while, the because it is such a huge... You know, you and I have both worked on these kinds of projects before where you just have a giant dump of information. And it's it's up to you as the journalist to kind of sort it out and make it presented in a palatable way that makes sense. So when you have like all of these pictures and all of these, you know, speeches and, and all of the stuff that is about these inner workings of these camps, it can be very hard to even know where to start presenting it. Um, and it was it was quite taken with what the BBC did where they kind of put together like a graphics package almost where you, as you scroll through the story, it shows you, all right, this is a camp. This is where the guards are. This is what it looked. This is what, you know, daily life in one of these camps kinds of looks like And that interspersed with, you know, pictures of people that have been detained there. Right. And, you know, <clears throat> actual pictures of the documents that have been scanned, that kind of thing. I thought that was uh, affecting. Yeah, totally. I, I mean, there aren't really any new, let's say, facts in, in this data dump, right? We know that the Chinese state is doing this. We know that they are carrying out this cultural genocide. We know that they are running these massive concentration or internment camps. So all of that is very well known and has been covered by, you know, a lot of very good journalists and 
and whistleblowers uh, around the world. This just gives you a much more tangible sense of how real it is. And the the fact of the matter is that often when journalism <clears throat> is trying to generate impact, or maybe not even trying, but journalism generates more impact when people really understand the issue that is going on. And maybe this sort of visual aid from this material can help people better understand what exactly is actually happening in these camps. That doesn't mean anything's going to necessarily stop, unfortunately. You know, of course, I, this is a, a monumental, uh, colossal issue, but people are going to come away from this, come away from this hack, understanding more of what's actually going on, I think. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah and I think it's important to note that uh, the Chinese Communist Party it's not as if they deny that these camps exist or what is taking place in there. Um, I think that what their disagreement is in uh, degree and uh, the way that it is portrayed other places, right? Because these are things that like they themselves take pictures of, show video of, and show people internally, right? Like probably not the worst abuses, not the worst of what we see, but it's not – these things are not secret, um, right? Right. I, I mean, the Chinese state um, frames them as something like reintegration, reintegration camps, something like that. You know, oh, we have this minority population and we're trying to help them. You know, well, they'll be closer to, you know, the main Chinese population. They'll understand it better. They'll be able to work after that. They present it more as an opportunity for helping these people when in reality it is trying to assimilate aggressively assimilate that population with the majority to basically wipe out any cultural heritage that the, the Uyghurs or ever uh, ethnic minority groups may actually have in that country despite them you know this this being their home obviously right all right so what do we know about where these documents came from and how they were acquired we don't know super we don't know much on the specifics but what was very interesting is that the organization that first obtained the documents and then you know multiple instances of the journalistic articles based upon those did explicitly say that this was obtained through hacking you know and we've we've had big leaks before that have been suspected of being a hack you know i think some of the financial disclosures uh from you know big um, offshore banking firms. Some of those were suspected of being via hackers, but it was never really said either way. In this one, it explicitly says um, we the, the the source independently got these um, through hacking, right? And I'll just bring up the the quote that um, well, Doctor Adrian Zenz, who is the director and senior fellow in China studies at the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, which originally obtained the documents. He told me um, when the information came out, this is the first hack that he knows of when it comes to um, information coming out of Xinjiang. Now, we've definitely seen data leaks come out from the area or related to the area. The Intercept did a January 2021 story about a massive police database, but it didn't say whether that was hacked or exposed or something like that. I think we've actually obtained... Um, data sets related to Xinjiang previously as well, but they were exposed sort of servers online, you know, where someone misconfigures it and 
um, there's no password or something, and then it gets scanned by a researcher, they download it, that sort of thing. I think there's actually been a few of those, and even more uh, generally when it comes to the Chinese state apparatus. But according to Zens, this is the first hack uh, that they know of. And the BBC, as I mentioned, they were they were very explicit. And what they said was that the, the anonymous source had claimed to, quote, have hacked, downloaded, and decrypted the files from a number of police computer servers in the Xinjiang region. So, I mean, that that's about as much as we know about where it came from. But it is interesting that they're being very explicit about, look, this this came from hacking. And I think maybe a few years ago, maybe journalistic outlets would have been a lot more nervous to admit that. You know, maybe the lawyers would have gone involved. Maybe they would have been a little bit scared about admitting that. I think nowadays, media outlets much better understand the value that hacked data can present, even if it was obtained via a, something that would be a crime in in certain countries, right? Uh, but there is obviously a public interest in this material, and I think journalists and academics increasingly see that and are increasingly um, okay with saying where the data came from. And if anything, I think it's a benefit as well. Like, this is not, oh, some shadowy person leaked us some documents necessarily that people could say were fake or whatever. It's like, we verified that these documents are real. That's what the journalists did. And we know that they came from within inside Chinese computer servers themselves. You know, if anything, that's beneficial to make people pay attention. Do you think then there's a benefit if you are a hacktivist and you want to get this information out to coming forward and saying like, yes, we acquired this through hacking. We pulled it out. Uh, I think so uh, in some ways, because it can prove or at least give a little bit more legitimacy to the authenticity of the documents. Right. And that, that doesn't mean that people don't fake documents that can happen as well. But I think the combination of saying it came from hacking and it going through journalistic outlets that is how you really generate a buzz about this material. I mean, let's say there was the, let's say in another universe, this went a little bit differently and the hacker got all of this data and they uh, uploaded it on mega uh, or some other sort of um, distribution service. And they just like leaked it on Twitter or something. First of all, that probably would have got removed from Twitter (laughs) based on their new, um, their new uh, hacking material policies. They probably would have removed any tweets, you know, they included that information. But I think the impacts or at least the attention probably would have been a bit, a lot lower, right? There would have been a few articles saying, oh my God, like Xinjiang police were hacked. And we probably would have done those as well because of course that is still newsworthy. But not necessarily that many people would go through the documents because there would be the added pressure of, well, we don't know if we're going to be able to actually do this because maybe a competitor is doing it um, and maybe we just have to move on to other things. This way of the hacker, whoever they are, being a lot more tactical by going to somebody, this uh, organization that clearly cares about Xinjiang and are experts in the cultural genocide going on there who could then verify the documents, go through them in great detail without feeling the time pressure of, well, this stuff's just on the internet now, it allowed them to do this properly, you know? And I think that it's demonstrated just by 
the 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 depth and the wealth and the richness of the coverage. I don't think you would have coverage this good and this visceral and potentially this informative if the hacker would just post a link online, you know? I have to say, you just admirably set up the back half of this podcast and everything I want to talk about. <laughs> uh, but first, we're going to pause here for a break. We're, you are listening to Cyber. I am Matthew Galt, talking to Joseph Cox about hacktivism, and we will be right back after a few words from our sponsor. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. All right, cyber listeners, thank you for sticking with us. We are on talking with Joseph Cox about uh, some files that were hacked out of police servers in Western China. Um, so there's a lot I want to talk about uh, um, with all the things that you just brought up, but I want to focus on Twitter first. Uh, you mentioned that their their hacking policy. Can you just explain what that is to the audience and like how things get tagged when they're shared online or even taken down? Sure. So, I mean, for years, Twitter has actually been a pretty useful distribution tool for all sorts of hackers. Now, that might be hacktivists who have got something that they believe is in the public interest and they're leaking that online. They post a link to it. Other people share it. People take screenshots, that sort of thing. It can also be beneficial to more financially motivated hackers who may be tweeting information to try to extort a victim, let's say. So there's a very wide spectrum of the sort of uh, distribution of hacking material that has happened on Twitter for a very, very long time. Um, somewhat recently, you know, in the past couple of years, Twitter actually changed its policy where you're not allowed to tweet links to hacked material and you're not allowed to post those screenshots to that hacked material that is obviously a very broad policy in some ways uh and i guess you kind of have to take it case by case but some examples is that um the transparency organization distributed to dial of secrets which often uploads plenty of these sorts of data breaches they were suspended um, from Twitter. You can't post a link uh, to the Distributed Denial of Secrets uh, website on Twitter in a tweet anymore, I don't think. I think that's still the case. Um, and I, f I believe around the time of the Blue Leaks leak, uh, which was of US police databases that uh, Distributed Denial of Secrets was banned from Twitter over, I think if you were just a Twitter user posting screenshots from that as well, you'd have the tweets removed. Um, or something like that. So this policy, I think, it, I don't think it came out of nowhere. Obviously, I think it started when post 2016, you know, uh, Guccifer 2.0 using Twitter to distribute information that was hacked from the DNC and that sort of thing. And then you have the Blue Leaks uh, data breach as well. And uh, Twitter has just clamped down on it. And I think um, more recently as well, you also had the Hunter Biden laptop story, right? Where information sourced from 
uh, Hunter Hunter Biden's laptop was put in some online news articles, including from the New York Post, and Twitter um, bottlenecked distribution of those articles. That was a little bit different in that it wasn't necessarily sourced through hacking uh, itself, but it's sort of related in that Twitter has clamped down on the distribution of certain pieces of, you know, sketchily sourced information, let's say. Okay, so someone at Twitter is making decision about, like, what is good hacking and what's bad hacking then, right, is what it sounds like, because this is getting shared, right? This in this is information that was acquired through hacking, right? Like, I can still share the BBC article, I can share the Vice article, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Do we have any indication of, like, what the difference is in their minds? No, that's really, really hard to say. And I think it would probably come down to some sort of public interest argument or some sort of amplification of harm argument, you know? So the Hunter Biden one taken down because they believe there may have been state involvement, you know, in, in the source of Russian state involvement in the sourcing of that information. When it came to the Blue Leak stuff and they stopped distribution of that, I mean, I think there's a massive public interest in some of the information in there. So it's really hard to say what counts as a good hack and what and what doesn't, basically. Uh, I think nowadays Twitter, generally speaking, is going to ear onto the side of if it's hacking, we're probably going to ban it. The difference sort of with the Xinjiang police files is that it's not a Twitter account, which is, you know, at Xinjiang police files we we've hacked it and we're dumping the information it is um articles coming from the bbc yeah exactly so it, it, it's hard to say but ultimately twitter does have to make and does make decisions um around what to distribute on its platform well i would also say and this is maybe the cynical real politic matthew talking uh twitter not doing a lot of business in china either right um right yes They're, they don't really have a market there so maybe, maybe that's the reason as well and maybe they just see the public interest in this sort of material as well it, it's hard to say but they do um they do draw a line somewhere right and it's their line again i mm-hmm. i i would have allowed the distribution of the blue leak stuff um depending on the individual files but yeah they are making decisions about that what in your mind what def- what distinguishes a hacktivist from a regular hacker uh it's hard to say because they're also making a decision <laughs> on what they think is in the public interest right but generally speaking a hacktivist is someone who goes out and they will break into a company maybe they'll wipe the information maybe they'll steal the information because they believe there is a benefit um in doing so not for financial gain but Generally speaking, so people could be more informed. So, you know, uh, several years ago, uh, me and our colleague, uh, Lorenzo, we did a series of stories all about the consumer spyware industry or the stalkerware industry, where ordinary people install smartphone malware onto the phones of their significant others in abusive relationships, right? That series was based on not one, but two data breaches at two separate stalkerware companies. And from what I remember, the the hackers who went into those companies did it very much so because they thought this industry is fucked up and we want to impact it somehow, you know? And they exfiltrated the data. They gave it to us. We verified it. We produced 
a, a slew of articles on it and there was some impact from that you know i think eventually the the ftc uh banned one of the companies and its ceo from ever making stalker wear ever again stuff like that i would say that is a pretty clear case of hacktivism you know they saw there was a public interest yes it involved a crime yes it involved breaking into people's um computers but they believed there was a public interest um argument there now you can it can get a little bit blurry where people will start claiming hacktivism when it's actually something else you know it could be a state agency uh, russia or whoever claiming they're anonymous when actually it's you know the gru <laughs> sat in in moscow uh, in their facility or it could be a financially motivated hacker who claims they're trying to expose information in the public interest but actually they're just trying to extort um extort a victim so it, it lots of people will operate underneath that banner but it's very case by case on who should could be called you know legitimately be called a hacktivist i also want to get into how the information is handled once it's acquired because i think that's pretty interesting um and i think we can use two historical examples to talk about this we you know i think when people think of hacktivism they often think of like wikileaks edward snowden and julian assange so Snowden and Assange had two very different methods for getting the information out. One, just pretty much info dump, right? Just put everything online. Snowden actually sought out, you know, Glenn Greenwald and Laura, I can't remember say her last name, Portius. Um, Portius. Yes, who made the documentary, um, like tried to get journalists to help him kind of sort what he had to get the information out. Um, this recent hack also they you know, got an international coalition of journalists together. It's not just the BBC that has the story. Lots of people have the story um, to report on this. What do you think it's important that do which, which method I guess do you think is more effective? I mean, I know what your answer is going to be, but for the sake mm-hmm. of the, the conversation, which one of these methods do you methods do you think uh, gets the information out in a better way? Yeah. I, I mean, generally speaking, um, very generally speaking, I would say that I do think there is a benefit where hackers um, obtain information, you know, using their skills, and then of their own volition and their decision, they might decide to provide it to journalists, you know. And again, I'm I'm never going to tell a source, hey dump it or don't dump it or or definitely give it to me or something it is entirely the source's decision but i would just point to sort of the increasingly long history <laughs> of hackers providing uh, information to journalists in that it can be very effective mostly for giving the data legitimacy you know you give it to journalists they go out they verify it they maybe do additional reporting um they make sure everything is authentic and they put it in context for an ordinary reader um a hacker may be incredible at sourcing information they may not be they may not have all the context for communicating that to um a reader you know that that's the journalist's part of the job whereas you know the journalist obviously can't go and source this information themselves as well i think there can be a partnership there i mean i think i actually gave a talk on this several years ago now um called hackers journalist unite at some sort of hackers conference where i was like we should work together but 
uh, without implicating each other in crimes, obviously, there was a whole legal uh, section on that. But basically, the point of that was that we can benefit each other while acknowledging that, yes, we may have different motivations. Uh, we have different ways of operating as well. But a pu- the public interest can be served by the collaboration um, of those efforts. And I guess I would just caveat with saying, like, we're not working together side by side. The hacker hands over the information and then the journalist does their thing. It is not necessarily a collaborative relationship. Well, certainly not. You're not going to ask the hacker to go, hey, can you go get this information out of their computer systems? No, you don't do that. You 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 take whatever, or you, you offer to take whatever the hacker has exfiltrated. You don't become a party to the hack, you know, that is the issue that Julian Assange did uh, mm-hmm. when he offered to, you know, crack a password hash for Chelsea Manning. Um, and that that's how you end up in hot water, obviously. But yeah, they're, they're, I think public interest can be served by those two groups working together. Speaking of Assange, I also think that there's a danger when the hacker does not remain anonymous is then there's we're such a personality driven culture that it's very easy for the stories to become about Assange or Snowden and not what they uncovered. And I've noticed that in the last, you know, 15 years of this kind of stuff playing out, we've, the personalities have been a lot more anonymous. Do you think that's true? And do you think that that's a good thing? I think it could be a mixed bag because the reason that Snowden originally um, announced himself as the leaker was that so the narrative could not be hijacked, right? So they could not say, oh, this was a hostile Chinese or Russian operation. He wanted to own it to say, no, look, I'm a whistleblower. There's a public interest in this information. I'm coming forward. And I think for the sake of the story and the issue of massive government, uh, US government surveillance, that was the right call. But as you allude to, he's now become a personality sort of in his own right, a story in his own right. And I think maybe just with Snowden, it's just because so much time has passed. You know, we're coming up to 10 years after the Snowden revelations. They happened in 2013, right? You know, next year will be uh, the anniversary. Uh, Maybe it's just been a very long time, you know, and and that's why he's come up again. But generally speaking, I think that um, anonymity can be beneficial in that you're not looking at the personality, you are looking at the data, at the story. You know, and maybe a recent example could be something like uh, the Pegasus Papers, uh, where various outlets from around the world, they reported on the basically a sort of de facto target list of clients of the government malware vendor NSO Group, included all these French politicians and, and, and various other people. Um Amnesty International obtained that information and gave it to journalists, that sort of thing. There was no sort of character for people to latch onto. You know what I mean? It was purely about the papers uh, and the data itself. So I think it can go, I think it can go either way. But if you don't, if there isn't a danger of the narrative being hijacked, maybe it is better just to stay anonymous. Yeah. What are some of the other recent incidents of hacktivism? Um, the Blue Leaks one, as I mentioned, was probably one of the most significant ones, which is where uh, a hacker who said they operated under the umbrella of Anonymous broke into a fusion center, uh, which are sort of these intelligence hubs that uh, federal and local and state police in the United States use. And they got a whole bevy of information about how U.S. police 
uh, operate. You know, that was probably the first major one in quite a long time. Ever since then, there's been, you know, several smaller ones and distributed denial of secrets has been probably the main distributor of a lot of those. But sort of the next chapter, probably in hacktivism recently, has been um, the Ukraine conflict, right? Or Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We've had a, a dizzying amount of hacktivism uh, in support of Ukraine, targeting Russian uh, businesses, entities, uh, government agencies, that sort of thing. I've never seen that amount of activity from so many different parties at once targeting one general organization, you know, that being the Russian government or, or its offshoots, right? Um, that That was and still is a whole other level uh of hacktivism and i think that's where we are now where we're we're in this post post anonymous when it was a very very long time ago and they were breaking into companies and they went down for a bit then blue leaks happens it sort of comes back uh also the breaches of hacking team and finn fisher um by phineas fisher that we covered a lot as well it, so it has been ebbing and flowing and now i think we're pretty solidly back in sort of a second maybe a third age i'd probably say a second age of hacktivism for sure all right let's say i, I want to know a little bit about how the sausage is made or i want the audience to know a little bit of how the sausage is made here let's say you get approached uh, a couple hours from now you get a message somebody says they have something for you how do you go about beginning to work with an anonymous hacker and vet their information yeah, sure. So, I mean, this will often happen over an encrypted chat channel, you know, Wicker or uh, Jabber. Not so much now because Jabber is just overrun by spam, so it's unusable. But it'll be, you know, some sort of encrypted chat program that I have. And we make those publicly available so people can just reach out, you know. Um, they will maybe say they have a story and I'll say, okay, what's it about? Uh Often they will just send the data uh, and other times they won't. And you may have to ask them, hey, that's a very big claim that you say you've hacked this company. Can I look at the data? And I wouldn't say it's a negotiation because that's, that's sort of the wrong connotation. But there is a, there's a back and forth, a conversation where I'm basically trying to establish, first of all, how legit this feels. And you, just, you develop a feel for whether it feels real or not. Uh, obviously who the target is and what the data involves. Um, and then ultimately being able to obtain that data so we can authenticate it. You know, in the worst case scenario, you won't get the data and you will have to try and verify a company's been hacked another way. And that can work by I'll approach the company with some information and they'll confirm the breach or I'll talk to some employees or whatever. But really you want the data set because we have... Once we have that, we have various ways of authenticating it. And I mean, one of the most popular ones or most successful ones that we do is let's say it is a database of usernames and passwords or something like that. We won't go and just log into people's accounts because you can't do that. We will go to the website and we will... Oh, well, let me make a new account and I'll try to make an account with some of the usernames, including the spreadsheet. And if it's legit, the website may say, you can't do that. This user already exists. So that is indicating that my spreadsheet does relate to data that is on the back end. Um, and then that's a pretty good 
that's a pretty good point where you know where you can probably move forward with the story. But beyond the technical verification, a lot of it is dealing with those with those sometimes conflicting motivations, right? You know, I would I would actually say the majority of hackers I speak to are not hacktivists. So I'd probably say about 30% are hacktivists. 70% are financially motivated criminal hackers, just because that's sort of the niche that I've kind of carved out for myself, right? And you have to constantly talk to them uh, knowing that they are likely a criminal and to not incriminate um yourself you know i don't offer to help uh when i recently had one hacker say hey can you contact electronic arts and deliver our ransom message i'm like no (laughs) obviously not you have to remain independent while interested while verifying and it's a very tricky balance but i think i would just end this point by just saying that hackers probably more often than not do respect it when you draw a line saying i'm not here to help you but i think there's public interest in this information and if you share it i will do my absolute best to report on the public interest that this data contains basically yeah i think that that's like a misconception that people have about journalists and how we work uh very often when we are dealing with a source or talking to somebody we're pretty brutally honest at least i try to be about like what our motivations are and how this process is going to work it's because we don't want them to be taken by surprise when we, you know, won't deliver a, a ransom note to EA for them, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Yeah, totally, totally. And um, I think that transparency is helpful for everyone. You mm-hmm. know, it, it gives the source a better understanding of journalistically what is going on here. It give, obviously puts us in a better position because we have to remain impartial. You know, we have to remain independent. So just that sort of red line of of drawing a line in the sand it benefits everybody and ultimately it benefits the readers because if we publish an article and it turns out we're not impartial it undermines the story even if there was public interest in it you know that is why we're being uh that's why we're being independent ultimately for the benefit of our readers and the story Joseph Cox, thank you so much for walking us through this. I do have one thing I want to bring up before I let you go, um, because you forced me to see this right before we got on the air. Um, you and I have both beaten Elden Ring. Yes. At this point. Yes. Um, great game. Great game. Wonderful game. Apparently, Elon Musk also just beat Elden Ring. Uh, and, <sighs> and he tweeted out his build. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. I am too. I've got it. I've got it. I've got it pulled up. He's a hundred. He's level 111, which is respectable. Like if you're at the end of the game, it's a level that makes sense. His equip load though is 67.2 out of 68.8. Elon is fat rolling through Elden Ring. It's very upsetting. And just like looking, looking at his gear set and what he's got set up. My man's got two shields on his left hand. Uh huh. Like I think yes. I feel like if you would just clear out one of those, he could at least be medium rolling, right? Yes. Um I, I just think it's fantastic that somebody who's constantly seen as this sort of superhuman genius is having an issue with one of the most basic mechanics of this game is that maybe you shouldn't carry a shitload of stuff at the same time because otherwise you're gonna be heavy rolling everywhere, you know? I don't know. I, I, I we we can't claim many victories in this very <laughs> depressing time you know and especially against musk when he's 
just flat out denying all of these disgusting allegations against him. So I'm going to take a very small victory in looking at his Elden Ring build and being like, that is absolute trash. What the fuck are you doing? We can absolutely judge him for his poor Elden Ring build. And his Lucet Glintstone staffs only plus eight. Come on, man. Yeah, man. Yeah. Where are you you spinning those stones? What's going on? it is ridiculous, and someone just—I tweeted about it. And someone replied to it that the idea of Elon heavy rolling <laughs> everywhere throughout the game brings him joy. I'm like, I'm going to latch onto that. Just the idea that he's played this game for so long unnecessarily like that. I mean, that's pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> All right, JC. Thank you so much for coming onto Cyber and walking us through this. Uh, if you like the show, please rate us, drop a comment. Uh, rate us on iTunes. It does help other people find the show. And we will be back a little bit later this week with another conversation uh, about our beautiful and horrible technological world. And uh, I think we're going to do this one on Twitch. We're going to do a live one, I think, tomorrow. Uh, And we will see you then. Goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.